Good morning, ladies and gentle people. Scott Colborn here with Exploring Unexplained Phenomena. It's great to have you with us, whether you're at the workplace or just kicking around home. With me here drinking coffee and acting like an adult is Jim Shorey. I don't know about that last part. Yeah, well, so far so good. So far so good, I'm behaving myself. Hey, Jim, what's our poster board say right there? What does it say? Let's see. We are, as of 3 p.m. Friday, we are $4,562 away from our goal of $40,000. That's pretty awesome, but we still got a little bit more to do. So we thank those people that last week called in donations. And for those that haven't done so, you can go online at kzom.org. And you can make your donation and mm-hmm. help us achieve that 40000 And the kicker is, it's so important to hit that goal because the fiscal year for KZM Radio ends in the end of September. And by then, if we've achieved that $40,000 goal, we then qualify for the grant from the, public, uh, the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. So that money is about $60,000, bucks. So your donation right now goes a long way, mm-hmm. <clears throat> especially when we get right down to the nitty-gritty. Um, gosh, how would you like to be the, the donation that decides that grant for 65000 bucks? Wouldn't that be cool? So uh, if you haven't donated to Exploring Unexplained Phenomena, the annual fund drive, please do so at online at kzum.org. And we sure appreciate that. And we take any amount. Pretty much, and uh, you know, you, you can you can uh, name the show that you're donating to or donating in in behalf of. We hope it's EUP, but you can pick whatever show you want. Hey, Jim, we've got a great show today. We've got a brand new guest, a first time guest, uh, Doctor Frank Cashuti, and uh, you're going to help me with a pronunciation for his yeah. last name. We'll start off with Charlene and the Capital Humane Society. Then we've got Lloyd Arbach. He'll be talking about a class coming up on developing your intuition. Then our main guest, the author of Chrysalis Crisis, How Life's Ordeals Can Lead to Personal and Spiritual Transformation. Ladies and gentlemen, here is Charlene from the Capital Humane Society. Good morning. Hey, Charlene, how are you? Things are going great. Thank you. Okay, what's what's coming up in activities for the Capital Humane Society? Uh, we have um, we still have the adoption special going on for adult cats. So if you're looking for an adult cat, you can consider uh, one of the beautiful ones that we have available. Um, so the first five adopted each day, um, their adoption fee is covered, and this is in honor or in memory of Mary Jo Livingston's beloved cat, Shadow. So do you have any numbers on uh, how many cats you've adopted out uh, within the past? I, I don't, month or and so? that's an excellent question. But I know we are nearing the goal. I'll bet they're flying off the shelves like hotcakes. Yes, yes. <laughs> well, we're not going to get rain for a while, but it could be raining cats. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know about that. But the the uh, the cats uh, that Capital Humane Society have they could be your next companion, your next best friend. Um, I had two cats in my former property, and, and they were great. Jasmine and Sananda both came from the Capital Humane Society. 
So we're going to start off with cats today, and the first five cats qualify for the uh, adoption fees being waived. So if you're one of those five that go out and start that adoption process, you may get your adoption fees waived. Okay, Charlene, who's the first cat? Uh, so Nia would qualify because she is an adult cat. They need to be a year older, and Nia is two years. A very elegant cat. She's a staid female, has medium-length fur, very intelligent and engaging, wants to be an important member of your family. Oh, yeah. She's a pretty one. Kind of uh, mm-hmm. white with uh, two different colored ears. That's right. Maybe a little calico pattern going yeah, on, but a lot of a white. Little, a lot of white. What an interesting looking cat. And Nia's about ready to paw at something, too. I think that toy the photographer's holding is getting pretty close. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she's got that hunter look on her face. I'm getting face. ready I'm here. I'm going to get that. A great cat's today. So we're starting off with Nia, N-I-A, and her buddy is? Tommy. And Tommy is 10 months old, a neutered male, domestic short hair. He's a flame point Siamese, so very, very cute, blue eyes, a little shy, took a day or so to come out of his little cubby, but now he's just very friendly, rubbing up on you and wants very much to have some attention. If you're looking for Tommy, you can be yelling, Tommy, can you hear me? I was just going to do it. <laughs> That's right. Anybody that's a pinball wizard out there, here's Tommy. Yeah. And he's Tommy's looking quite good. His buddy or friend is? Next up is Maury. Two years old, a spade female, domestic, domestic short hair. It looks like she has a little eyeliner on. She's the prettiest cat. It does. Um, got along with cats in her colony room um, and would love to find a great home where she can relax and purr and have a happy life. Okay, Maury, great-looking cat. We've got Nia, Tommy, and Maury. You can see their pictures at capitalhumanesociety.org. When you click on that thumbnail picture, it expands and gives you a little bit more about the cat. Better yet, and maybe you'll be one of those five that to get your adoption fees waived, go out this morning and see them. Here's Charlene with Hours Open. We are open at our Pylock Pet Adoption Center on Saturday and Sunday from 11 to 530. Tommy, can you hear me? Okay, time for some dogs. We got some cool dogs. If you guys and gals are up for dogs, here they come. Who's our first up? We'll start with Gruff. And Gruff is adorable. A little Shih Tzu, uh, three years old, a neutered male, a real sweetheart. He came in terribly matted, so we did have to shave him, but his fur will grow back healthy and shiny, and he will be just a very sweet companion, and we hope someone will be in soon to meet Gruff. Okay, and what's Gruff's age? Do you remember? Three years old. Okay, we've got uh, little boy Gruff. He'd love to meet you today. He's got a charming picture, and uh, Gruff is his name. I bet you that... uh, that's about as tough as he gets. <laughs> he'd, he'd, he'd melt your heart there. So, uh huh, for sure. Gruff is a fun one. His buddy is Stella, and Stella is about two years old, a boxer mix, a spade female, always a smiling, full of energy, wants very much to find a home where she'll be able to play and go on regular walks. 
Uh, if you're looking for a dog with a larger-than-life personality, Stella might be perfect for you. Great-looking dog there. I love the markings there of Stella. And she's got that really quizzical look, looking at the to- mm-hmm. photographer, therefore looking at you. So we've got uh, Stella and uh, Gruff, and then there's... Kanga. And Kanga is a two-year-old fade female lab mix. And she came in as a stray and was quite underweight and very scared. Um, But with patience and kindness, she has gained weight. Um, She's starting to trust people, and she really adores a lot of our staff here. So she'll be an amazing dog for someone who's patient and experienced and will bring out the best in her. K-A-N-G-A, Kanga. And uh, I love the expression on Kanga's face, boy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, she likes her treats, so that's what's going on there. <laughs> <laughs> Take a look at Gruff, Stella, and Kanga, and better yet, go out and see him today. Here's Charlene with Hours Open. Our Pylock Pet Adoption Center is open today and tomorrow from 11 to 530. Okay, Charlene, I hope you have a great rest of the day. Thank you for all you do out there. Thank you so much. Have a great day, too. Okay, make the Capital Humane Society the first place you go when you want to adopt a dog or a cat. Jim, that's uh, some Sulawesi coffee in your cup. There. Mm, good stuff. How is it? Yeah, delicious. Our next guest is Lloyd Arbach. Lloyd is the parapsychologist. He has taught at the collegiate level, author of many great books, and uh, he's got online classes taking place through the Ryan Education Center. Ladies and gentlemen, here is Lloyd Arbach. Good morning, Lloyd. Morning, Scott. You've got a class coming up called Developing Your Intuition. Tell us a little bit about that class, Lloyd. Um, Well, the class is pretty much developing your psychic experience, your psychic abilities class. Uh, It's a four-week online class for the Ryan Research Center. It is online, and uh, that means people can... Take it from anywhere in the country. Um, I've taught it before, and uh, it's it's kind of a fun class for me to to put put out there. It's really based on how different psychics uh, and parapsychologists have kind of come to conclusions about the best ways for people to find what they're good at psychically mm-hmm. and then develop it. Mm-hmm. So, Lloyd, I've had experiences in my own life, as our listeners have had where we have, um, um, if you will, semi-directed our intuition and gotten results. I've also had experiences where the information is presented to me via my intuition, and I honor that, and then it unfolds into really interesting ways. Um, I've got an example for you, if I can share it with you. Uh-huh. So years ago, I was doing research with um, Ray Boucher on the Bentwaters, Woodbridge, Rendlesham Forest events of December of 1980. We had engaged uh, in conversation the late Senator James Exon from Nebraska. He was the ranking member of the Armed Services Committee. And uh, we had been in communication. We'd met him. And it was about time to try to follow up. So... I've kind of set the stage. I'm in the car with my buddy, Ed Rumbaugh, and all of a sudden, my intuition says, go to Target. 
<laughs> and okay. I say, to, I say to Ed, "Hey, Ed, we need to go to Target." Well, why? I don't know. Maybe there's going to be some Hawaiian shirts on sale. I don't know. That's just we're we're kind of in the neighborhood. Let's go there. So. Five, ten minutes later, we show up at Target and park the car, and we're walking up to the front door. Who walks out of the front door of Target and steps to the side and loads his pipe? Senator James Exxon. Mm. So, That's have, definitely a psychic thing. Have you had those experiences, Lloyd, where suddenly your intuition says um, that there is an action needed? You follow that and the events unfold for you, and you're glad you did? On occasion. It's, it's not very common for me. You know, there are different ways that people experience uh, what we call psi or ESP, and uh, not all people have precognitive experiences. People mm-hmm. have them differently. I've had, certainly had precognitive dreams uh, in that way, and that's part of the process of the class is finding, is not only being able to listen to your intuition, but also knowing that you may be able to apply ESP in different ways. Mm-hmm. There are different ways for people to actually be psychic. Is there a value um, in the business world for intuition? Yeah, there certainly is. And there was a study actually done back in the 1960s, published a book called Executive ESP, um, where they... Uh, the researchers, John Michalowski was one of them, uh, Douglas Dean was the other. They actually looked at, you know, the, the corporate community, the business community, and they found uh, people who had risen very quickly through the corporate ranks, not because of nepotism, but just because of unusual decisions that they had made. And they actually were able to test those people for ESP and found that the ones ha- who had actually... Um, risen through the ranks very quickly that way did show some real ability. Mm-hmm. They interviewed them and they pretty much said that they listened to their intuition mm-hmm. rather than base their, their uh, decision-making on anything logical. And do uh, men and women equally have intuition? Well, again, you know, we're using the word intuition in this class just because it's, I mean, frankly, it's, it's more saleable than saying developing your ESP or developing psychic ability. The word intuition has been used by psychics since probably the, the 1960s, late 1960s, and especially in the business community. We do make a slight dif- differentiation in parapsychology between actual intuition and actual psychic ability, uh, in that intuition is defined by psychologists is something where we, you have the information you need to either make a decision or come up with a, an aha moment mm-hmm. that's in your head somewhere. Um, it is creatively um, combined information from different sources, and you may not even remember that you knew that stuff, whereas ESP is about not knowing at all. You could not possibly have known uh, the information, mm-hmm. although that gets, certainly gets combined with our intuitive process. So something like going to Target, we would not really call that an intuition. We'd call that precognition mm-hmm. in many respects, coming through as a feeling of intuition. And men and women, it certainly is equally distributed across the population. Men have gut feelings. Mm-hmm. We just use different terms for it. 
When my kids were little and it was cold, I would take them to school by car and we'd sit out front and wait for the, uh, the door to open. And we would play Lloyd uh, what we called the numbers game. I would act as the sender and I would pick a number between 1 and 20 and then mentally send that. And my children would, would take turns guessing that number. Um, lots of fun. So you can, you can play with this ESP in so many ways, and it can be something that is very fruitful, um, expands one's life, uh, opens up what we previously have been limited to in terms of our, our sense of reality, uh, and so many wonderful things happen. I understand in the class you're going to do a remote viewing experiment, and yeah. there's also a game you're going to introduce, a telepathy game that you can play with family and friends. Yeah, that, there are, I won't call them experiments, there are kind of game-like elements to learning ESP and remote viewing, both real-time and precognitive, that's something we are going to do. And uh, I developed a game as part of a game show years ago that was sold to the Game Show Network, unfortunately, because of internal workings when the president of the Game Show Network was replaced by somebody else, the show was canceled before it even went into production. Uh, but we, but I did develop an, kind of a, a really fun game that combines telepathy and clairvoyance in many respects. Mm-hmm. This is Lloyd Arbach. And Lloyd, for the information on this class, Developing Your Intuition, and for other classes, how can people find out more about this? Well, this is for the Rhine Education Center, R-H-I-N-E, uh, one of the easiest ways is to go to the Rhine Center's website, the main uh, Rhine Research Center website, which is just Rhine, R-H-I-N-E dot org. Uh, the specific one for the Rhine Education Center is actually just that, RhineEducationCenter.org. That's an easy one to remember, too. And the information will be there. Uh, the two classes that are currently ongoing right now, one of which I'm teaching, which is Scientific Approaches to ESP, um, We'll be there first, and you'll see that there is uh, right on the front, that front page is the, the Developing Your Intuition class. Just click on that and follow the information. Lloyd, in, in terms of leading us into this next part, next part of our discussion, uh, I'm going to make an analogy of the Wright brothers and their desire to try to create something that can actually fly, representing parapsychology. And the people that said, no, you won't be able to do it, are members of the skeptical inquirers, folks. And I understand that uh, there was a recent study that was published, and then there was a response from a member of the skeptical inquirer organization. And uh, whenever I hear that, I just... It's got a bad taste on my mouth. I'm cheering for the Wright brothers. Come on, baby, fly, come on. Mm-hmm. So tell us more about that. What's, what's the controversy? Well, um, this is a, the latest one, I guess you could say. There's been, mm-hmm. there've been many in the past. But in 2018, Etzel Cardinia, who's a psychologist and parapsychologist at, at Lund University in Sweden, published a survey article uh, looking at the analyses of ESP experiments and basically showed that there was evidence for ESP. This was published 
this is the controversy. It was published in the American Psychologist, which is one of the official arms of the American Psychological Association. Mm -hmm. And had it been published in the parapsychological journals, it wouldn't have created this kind of stir. Um, So uh, psychologists Arthur Reber and James Alcock published their, uh, I guess you could say, the response to the article, uh, which is not much of a response in many respects, considering the fact that essentially, this is actually a direct quote, we did not examine the data for Psy. The consternation of the parapsychologist was one of our one of the reviewers. Our reason was simple: the data are irrelevant. We use the classic rhetorical device, basically um, a form of hyperbole so extreme that it is in effect impossible. It's a pigs don't fly, basically pigs cannot fly, uh, kind of argument, basically saying that Psy, why look at the evidence because size is not possible. And then they, in the article, they use some physics arguments to um, about time's arrow and about thermodynamics and other and other inverse square law to show that it's not possible to be psychic that this information cannot work. So that's that was just it, it, the fact that they didn't even look at the information, look at the data because they said it was impossible. It's back to the, what you said about the Wright brothers. Uh, it was several weeks after the Wright brothers flew that people begrudgingly started to accept that they actually did the flight. Yeah. Yeah, there, there, were, uh, there were people that were experts in fitness that said that man could never break the four-minute mile because we weren't suited for it. We didn't have the physiology, right. didn't have the stamina, didn't have the endurance, the strength, etc. That all went out the window when the first person <laughs> broke the four-minute mile. <laughs> Yeah, you know, this is this is the history of science in general, that there are people who don't even look at the data, don't accept it, uh, and later on they they look like idiots. Mm-hmm. So, thank you for uh, saying what, that. What's, really, what's really interesting is that I found um, I happened to find a, this is only a couple of months ago uh, a blog by Gordon Bonnet, who is a skeptic. He's got a, a blog called Skeptophilia, and. He looked at the article, you know, of course, this is a guy who doesn't believe in ESP himself. But he looked at the article, <clears throat> and he totally took apart their arguments, Rivera and Alcock's arguments. Mm-hmm. Basically said, you know, saying that they did not understand, they don't understand physics. <laughs> uh, years so, ago- you know, that's the thing, is that it, there are some good people out there who, even if they don't buy it or don't believe it, are willing to take other skeptics to task for using bad arguments. Mm-hmm. And when people, you know, the sad thing is that people who read the Skeptical Inquirer, you know, many of them are, there are good some doubters rather than disbelievers there. But the skeptics movement has been more and more um, almost religious, seemingly like religion, it's faith-based. If these experts say that something doesn't happen, clearly it doesn't happen. If they say that there's no evidence, then clearly there's no evidence. I mean, I was at a science fiction convention last year with Ed May, who was one of the was the sure. program director of the Stargate program, and another parapsychologist, Pamela Heath, last year, and we were talking about um, parapsychology for science fiction people, you know, and what the reality is. And somebody in the audience piped up and said, "Hey, how come?" You know, you guys aren't going for the million-dollar challenge, Randy's million-dollar challenge. And I shut him down immediately. I said, well, first, did you know that the million-dollar challenge hasn't been offered since 2010? 
he shut it down. And I went on on after that. Kind of, and the guy kind of slunk away at that point. Mm-hmm. Well, our common friend, um, the late Martin Caden, uh, offered James Randi uh, the chance to come down to his Cocoa Beach, Florida home to view Martin at work using psychokinesis to manipulate and move objects. Right. And that he invited Randy to bring in any engineer team that he wanted to, and that he would prove to Randy's satisfaction that he could actually do that. Uh, The the point I want to get to here, Lloyd, is that I'm cheering you and you guys on. These guys that, that cloak themselves in the garb of science and pretend to be the final arbiters of what is and what is not, they have a smugness and an arrogance about them that I find just distasteful. And I find their stance to be unscientific. <laughs> it's totally unscientific. And, you know, they bel- the worst part is <clears throat> how they belittle and undermine other scientists who have an interest. And I'm not even talking about parapsychologists. Mm-hmm. Um, in the scientific and the academic world, People like the folks like Alcock or people like the people who write these kinds of articles or who have this, as you said, smugness about them, have caused serious problems for people in academia, uh, trying to embarrass them, calling them, you know, basically getting them, uh, calling them names. The Skeptical Inquirer actually did a hatchet job post-mortem only a couple of years ago about J. Allen Hynek. And... It was amazing to me they got somebody from Northwestern who was, I think it was the dean at the time, who actually participated in that hatchet job. And and yet they were all too happy to have Heineck give the opening lecture uh, to incoming freshmen for the College of Arts and Sciences. I, I know, I was there. Uh, they were all too happy to promote him as long as they promoted Northwestern University. But And Heineck actually never was not a true believer in that in, in any sense of the word. He was a true scientist. Yep. So they have that smugness. They they mm-hmm. really try to use their idea of, oh, this is a whole woo-woo uh, mm-hmm. to make fun of, embarrass. They're basically bullies is what they are. Yep. Okay, this has been Lloyd Arbach, the author of many books, a parapsychologist, and he's got an online class coming up, Developing uh, Your Intuition. And am I right again that they can go to Ryan Education Center and find out more? That's right, RyanEducationCenter.org. Okay, Lloyd, thanks so much for all that you do. It's great to touch base with you. Thank you, sir. All right, thanks, Scott. Lloyd Arbach, he uh, joins us every third Saturday of the month. And uh, Lloyd is also a professional stage magician, and I like to tell people that, that he actually survived me being on stage, bumbling a card exchange and card trick, and he still made it work. (laughs) Okay, um, we've got our main guest coming up here, and that's Frank Pasciutti. And Dr. Pasciutti is the author of Crystallist Crisis, How Life's Ordeals Can Lead to Personal and Spiritual Transformation. I'm Scott Colborn with Jim Shorney. We'll be right back after this. Scott Colborn with Exploring Unexplained Phenomena. Jim Shorney here. You guys and gals out there, what is in your cup this morning? I've got some fresh ground and brewed Sulawesi 
that Jim and I are enjoying. It's sure great to have you out there. Special thanks to the people that, uh, that made donations last week during our show to support nonprofit, non-commercial KZUM Radio. We appreciate that. We're about $4,500 in total away from our annual goal, our fall fundraiser goal of $40,000. Your donation right now means a great deal because there's a large chunk of money, a grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting that literally rides on achieving this goal. And so your money goes incredibly far. If you haven't already donated to support the Exploring Unexplained Phenomena program and nonprofit, non-commercial KZUM, please make your donation today. And uh, you have no idea the impact that your donation can have right now. You can do that online at kzum.org, and we appreciate that very much. Dr. Frank Paschuti is a licensed clinical psychologist and certified hypnotherapist in Charlottesville, Virginia. He's the founder and president of Associated Clinicians of Virginia, and uh, he's the chairman of the Institutional Review Board at the Monroe Institute in Faber, Virginia, collaborates on research on near-death experiences, psychic phenomena, the survival of consciousness, at the Division of Perceptual Studies, a research unit of the Department of Psychiatry and Neurobehavioral Sciences at the University of Virginia School of Medicine. The brand new book that he is the author of is Chrysalis Crisis, How Life's Ordeals Can Lead to Personal and Spiritual Transformation. Dr. Pesciuti, welcome to the broadcast. Thank you, Scott, for having me on. I hope I'm doing justice in pronouncing your last name, sir. You've got it exactly right. Okay. I'm used to having it butchered over the years, but you, you nailed it. <laughs> Dr. Pesciuti, I imagine that as a clinical psychologist, you've seen your share of people in crisis needing change. Absolutely. That's usually the reason they come in. Um, and uh, and it, it, it can be similar kinds of crises, but from person to person, it implicates very different areas of their development that may need to be um, cultivated or strengthened so they can integrate the experience and grow from it. Mm-hmm. Does, the, does the psychologist also learn about themselves when they're in the process of helping others? Oh, most definitely. As a matter of fact, it's awfully, it's awfully uh, uh, coincidental sometimes. There's a saying that says your problems walk in the room, uh, <laughs> and you're, as in reflecting and mirroring your own. <laughs> and then it's a real challenge because uh, if you you know, understanding uh, the idea of that, sometimes the, uh, the client relates to you as if you are somebody significant in their life called transparency. But on the reverse, many times... Uh, a client will come in presenting a problem that activates something that you need to grow on, which uh, which uh, affects what we call counter-transference. So we're always open to the ways in which working with a given client is 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 uh, cueing us to areas where we need development. And the more you grow over time as a therapist and as a person, the, the better your range gets in terms of who you can help and how effective you can be. Mm-hmm. 
What led to the writing yeah. of this book, Chrysalis Crisis? And why did you, of all the things that you could have called the book, why, do you, why did you call it that? Well, um, well, first of all, I was reading about something, I think a, an article somewhere, and I remember hearing the story, which I, I, I um, use as part of my preface of a little girl who uh, goes out and notices in her backyard this caterpillar who developed a cocoon, Christmas cocoon, and became intrigued by it, and every day would go out and then one day sees the cocoon breaking open and a butterfly sprouting its wings, uh, and then noticed that the butterfly was uh, struggling to emancipate or free itself from the cocoon. And in her own way, she felt sorry for it and tries to help it and in doing so, touches the butterfly's wings, and it falls to the ground. And then she's devastated. She sees that it died, and she goes and tells her mom. And her mom said, you know, sweetheart, the butterfly's challenge, its struggle to free its wings from the cocoon was a necessary struggle. It not only helps it separate from the cocoon, but it strengthens its wings for flight. And I thought, well, that's a wonderful metaphor that can be used when you talk about people after they go through their own meltdown, if you will, of a given crisis, uh, that oftentimes it's a struggle to not only free yourself from the crisis, but in doing so, there's often areas of development that maybe uh, reflect their pre-morbid, or the, you know, the state they were in before they had to deal with the crisis. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes, as a result of that, they have to strengthen areas of their, of their lives that help them for the rest of their life. So even though they have to contend with the crisis and it does cause suffering and pain, uh, the emancipating from it and or the integrating it leads to growth. Uh, there's often a pivot in therapy where after people, you know, you don't start talking to them right away, like, you know, if they just had the death of a loved one, say, okay, so what can we learn from this? And then you help them, you help them work through it. But generally, there are areas that may come to uh, evidence themselves that are, are fleshed out because of the crisis that, that lead to further growth and transformation. Mm-hmm. Uh, this title by Sherry Huber, I'd like to have you react to it and tell me uh, how your work connects with this. Here's the title by Sherry Huber. That which you are seeking is causing you to seek. That's interesting. Well, there's a um, a notion in traditional psychoanalytic theory um, that if you are um, if your own growth and evolution uh, requires that you master a certain area, like. Mm-hmm. Uh, Let's say you had a trauma in life or you had a poor relationship with your mother uh, and that you might actually move, be gra- gravitate towards relationships that reflect that, re- that, that kind of dynamic, that unhealthy dynamic that might have gone on uh, as an attempt to master it. So you might be seeking. So in that way, I would say that the, uh, the, uh, what they call the teleological drive for growth, which Teilhard de Jardana uh, a priest from, I guess, the 18th century uh, once said that we're all in the process of becoming. And so in the process of becoming, I think there's an unconscious, intuitive sense of what we need to grow. And if we have some things that we're not resolved about, we tend to either contribute to or gravitate towards situations that, uh, that, over, that lead to a reenactment so that finally we can learn to master that and then move on. Mm-hmm. So that's maybe what you need, and you don't know you need it completely. Mm -hmm. This is Dr. Frank Pesciuti. 
He's the author of the brand new book called Chrysalis Crisis, How Life's Ordeals Can Lead to Personal and Spiritual Transformation. So, ladies and gentlemen, all, the, all you folks that are listening right now, if you're not operating heavy machinery and can have an arm free, hold one of your hands up and wave it in the air. If you've gone through a crisis and a transformation, have you gone through a crisis? I would guess right now, Dr. Pashuti, that almost everybody is waving their hand. Yeah, well, you know, who gets away unscathed in life? I mean, we're all, I open the book with the notion that everything changes and there's always a certain amount of suffering. Mm-hmm. And it's a harsh reality, but we all, you know, we all have, you know, and even in the research on psychotherapy, people who come to therapy in pain use it the best. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you're just coming to therapy because you hear it's kind of an interesting process and you want to have tea with your therapist, but if you go there and you're dealing with pain and you're dealing with crisis in your life, usually your attention is heightened and you're going to probably be willing to move forward into the unknown if the fire behind you is great enough, you know? So, you know, I think you can, uh, there's a way where you can say, you know, it's kind of an optimistic uh, take on life that all this kind of pain, there's a there's a growth potential in it. There's a silver lining in those clouds. In your book, do you also lead people into a realm that says that there is a hard-to-quantify presence in each of our lives that is perhaps an aspect of deity, of, of consciousness that we're connected to, that will help us, will lead us, that will take us to the right place, uh, that is there for... For assistance. Absolutely. I believe in that. I've experienced it. It's something that I think helps if you trust at first and have faith that it exists. Mm -hmm. And I guess to get away from the religiosity of spiritual development and just looking at it as purely an aspect of consciousness, a greater consciousness that we're all a part of it, that gives rise to everything. Um, I look at 10 critical areas in the book that are very broad, uh, that are all what I consider to be uh, ca- ca- capacities of consciousness that we are able to um, experience and develop in human form. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that consciousness runs everywhere from, you know, just a rock and the, the energy in a rock, if you will. It's not just totally just dead and inanimate, uh, but all the way up to the highest of spiritual levels. Um, and so on some level there, I believe we are able to connect with the subtle transpersonal spirit dimension uh, that, that that both we are able to tap into and use for guidance uh, and also become more consciously aware of uh, and those states get very subtle but it also but they also implicate the other dimensions that I talk about which are like physicality emotionality intellectual development moral social a sense of identity intimacy and existential, understanding about where we are in life. And then it opens up to those transpersonal areas, which I identify as intuitive uh, and spiritual. And in those, I mean, intuitive actually start implicating psychic functions mm-hmm. that defy the way we think time and space work and spiritual experiences, which oftentimes suggest uh, consciousness functioning outside the physical body, as in people experience that with near-death experiences mm-hmm. or out-of-body experiences. And people are able to maybe in deep states of meditation or altered states of consciousness, directly access the information that is all around us. 
and can be helpful to us both creatively and or just gaining insight or just expanding our awareness. In the segment right before you, uh, your main guest segment today, Dr. Pashuti, we had the parapsychologist and author Lloyd Arbach on the program. Oh, yeah. And he was talking about a, a recent, uh, quote-unquote, rebuttal against psychic phenomena and ESP by the Skeptical Inquirers um, magazine. And um, it's been my sense, and I want to ask you, Dr. Pashuti, for your opinion, it's been my sense that when... You spend time with people, you get past some of the social guards that people keep up, and people feel free to communicate. They're not going to be laughed at. They're not going to be made fun of or ridiculed. The conversation's warm, engaging, inviting. When you bring up examples of ESP and psychic phenomena, oftentimes people will say in quiet moments, oh, yeah, I've experienced that. They may not quantify it as ESP or as psychic phenomena, but there are so many people out there that have experienced this. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's very much a part of who we are in our reality. And it's, again, it's hard for me to listen to the arguments of the closed-minded skeptics that say uh, there can't be any such thing, so don't even look at the data. <laughs> yeah, well, that's a good point. That's an excellent point. And I know I, uh, I know that um, uh, that it, that research. Uh, if you look at the research on paranormal or anomalous experiences, it's been around for years. I mean, very credible people. Uh, William James, who's considered the father of American psychology, started you know the psychic psychic organization back in the late 1800s, where he thought he was working with somebody who was dissociative and tried to learn more about dissociative personality disorders, and finds out the woman was a legitimate medium who under really stringent controlled conditions truly did seem to gather information from discarnate spirits. And so he and, and uh, Frederick Myers, who was another uh, great researcher, started that whole area of investigation. And, and that was at the time when people were starting to open up to this idea of an unconscious. You know, Freud and Carl Jung and all those people were sort of saying, hey, there might be actual levels of awareness that are outside your conscious awareness, or levels of understanding or, or, or information. And so, interestingly, you asked me a question, so now that we're on to this uh, topic, I'll tell you, you said, why did I write this book? Well, mm-hmm. I wanted to try to build a bridge between crises that most people are familiar with that might implicate physicality, you know, injury, sickness, um, it, through, you know, intellectual crises, you know, changes of beliefs, the way people believe, uh, with organizations like the Monroe Institute and University of Virginia's Division of Perceptual Studies and the Casey Institute here in Charlottesville and the Ryan Institute. I give talks there and know a lot of people there. Um, that they have, they these folks, when they have those experiences, even though a lot of them have them, when they have the actual experience, it, it can throw them into crisis. And they'll often come in and say, I had a dream, for example, and I, 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 I had a dream that this was going to happen, and it actually happened, and it scares me. And mm-hmm. I don't know if I'm losing my mind. And that's when I get an opportunity to talk about, you know, psychic phenomena, or like if somebody back, lots of have been written about near-death experiences over the years, but back when I was in grad school, for instance, I had a guy in 1978 come in and had a near-death experience and then was very uh, uh, inclined towards precognition and other paranormal experiences, which we now know is common for people in the aftermath of NDEs. Mm-hmm. It's almost like it loosens your tether 
of mind and, and uh, experience uh, to the brain. And, you know, uh, these throw people into crisis. So I, I wanted to include those in the kinds of crises in this book to say they, too, can lead to transformation. And you can maybe become aware that I had this whole dimension to myself that I often maybe was skeptical of until I had this experience. So experience is really important in all this. It's easier to work with somebody who's had the experience and then say, okay, here's the information, or here's where you can find information about why it's legitimate that you can have a precognition about something that hasn't happened yet in time and uh, in space as we've come to be come to know it. Um, but if you try to convince somebody who's so grounded and never had an experience and just isn't open-minded, it's hard. They're going to find all the reasons for saying, oh, that's a bunch of hogwash. Uh, the late and great Professor John Mack from Harvard uh, was a psychiatrist, and he came out and took a, a lot of professional heat for saying that that our current understanding of the human condition of psychiatry doesn't medically explain the reports of people that are having interactions with other uh, alleged sentient beings from elsewhere. He was talking about the occupants of UFOs, uh, this broad term of extraterrestrials, we might also say interdimensionals, and I just sometimes say other people. Um, and so he was very outspoken about that. Uh, we need yeah, more. Well, you know what? We need, yeah, we need more good people, I think, like that, because sometimes, and I'm sure, Dr. Pashuti, in your work, you've also encouraged the same way by responding to somebody's report of extraordinary experience and say, well, the good news is you're not alone. Others have reported this as well. Sometimes that's a huge deal to hear, gosh, I'm not going crazy. Other people have experienced yeah. this. That's right. I, and, and, and I'm not like some non-self-disclosing therapist because I've had my share. I've never had a UFO experience, but I have had a, couple, a number of precognitions. I don't think I'm super special because of it. But I think when, you, but when you're encouraged to be open, you know, an interesting thing, uh, about the research in parapsychology is what's called the sheep-goat effect. I don't know if you've ever heard of that, but they, when they've done, like at places like the, the, the Ryan Institute, which used to be part of Duke University and now is down there, but is, is more separate and independent, you know, they did some really good research, and a woman uh, up in New York City who was a parapsychologist and a very grounded clinical psychologist, her name was Schmeidler, um, she's since uh, deceased, but she found that when they did ESP kinds of testing on folks, that people who believed it was possible that they could have these psychic capacities, they tended to uh, score beyond chance to a significant level. And interestingly, and they, of course they tested them beforehand, they would say, you know, do you believe in psychic phenomena? Do you believe you might have the capacity to, you know, to anticipate something before it actually happens? Mm -hmm. So they got a measure of their openness to it. For the people who didn't, they called it side missing. People who were dead set against dead set against it, oftentimes missed to a significant level, mm -hmm. leading us to, to surmise that uh, it, you, the way you believe or don't believe, you're still going to influence that capacity in one direction or the other. And and you know, if you grow up in a culture, for example, where people uh, are saying to you, "Hey, these capacities they exist or a part," you know, even if you, even in the Judeo-Christian um, religion, you know, you're going to hear Jesus say, these capacities I have to heal and, 
and to do all these uh, things that we call miraculous are everyone's capacities. Mm-hmm. He's not the only one who would say that. You know, you get like Buddha talking about the kinds of abilities that you can kind of discover if you're uh, an experienced meditator. And, you know, in the Hindu philosophy, similarly, uh, Pantajali, uh, 4,000 years ago, would say things like, hey, when you're meditating and you're in these deep states and altered states of consciousness, you're going to have what they call these CDs, S-I-D-D-H-I-S, which are the Christians call miracles and we call parapsychological phenomena, but they are capacities of the mind. And yet they're foreign. And in my book, I try to differentiate because I'm trying to keep myself one foot in the grounded camp of clinical psychology and the other one in the field of clinical parapsychology. Mm-hmm. And we tend to look at what's the continuum. You have, you have on one side, you have abnormal. In the middle, you have normal. And on the other side, you have what Dean Wade and Frederick Myers called supernormal capacities. So the trick is in differentiating and not pathologizing the supernormal as abnormal. It's just maybe less normal because it's less people's experience but it's not necessarily necessarily abnormal this is dr frank Bashuti. he's the author of a brand new book called chrysalis crisis how life's ordeals can lead to personal and spiritual transformation and we're going to take the top of the hour break we also have a caller on the line for you dr Bashuti. so if you both will hold right there we'll be right back Thanks so much again for listening this morning, and uh, stay tuned for more with Dr. Frank Pesciuti, the author of Chrysalis Crisis. I'm Scott Colborn with Jim Shorney. There's more to come. Stay right there. Scott Colborn with Exploring Unexplained Phenomena. It's sure great to have you out there. By the way, next week's guest is Marie Jones. It's been too long since we've had Marie on the, on the program. She has a brand new book out called Celebrity Ghosts and Notorious Hauntings, Stories of Fame, Death, and Ghostly Immortality. Our guest this morning is a first-time guest, Dr. Frank Pesciuti, and he's the author of Chrysalis Crisis, How Life's Ordeals Can Lead to Personal and Spiritual Transformation. Dr. Pesciuti, we've got a caller on the air. Uh, Can we take that call with you? Absolutely. Okay, caller, uh, can you hear me okay? Yeah, yeah, I can hear you. Okay, it's great to have you on the air. What's your first name? Uh, my first name's Ptolemy. Could you say that again, sir? Ptolemy. And what do you have to say or offer to uh, Dr. Pesciuti? <clears throat> okay, so about a month ago, I had a dream that I was homeless and I had amnesia, but I owned the, one of the rarest cars in the world. And I didn't realize it at the time in the dream because I had amnesia. And I was just looking for a place to sleep because I was homeless, you know, even though I had this car. Mm-hmm. And um, my uh, godson and his father came to me, and uh, they were telling me that they couldn't be my friends anymore because I'd gone insane. Mm-hmm. And um find a place to sleep... Um, I had to go back to this Rolls Royce, this yellow Rolls Royce, and uh, try and sleep in the car. But I was really worried that if um, anybody found me, they would think that I'd stolen the car because it was so expensive. But when I woke up the next morning, uh, I Googled the car on the Internet. Mm -hmm. And it's a famous car that was built in the 30s. And then it starred in a movie in the 60s. 
but its current owner is the head of the uh, car club for um, really rare cars in the area of the country that I was born in, and he bought it the year I was born. Hmm. That's a lot of... And then just two days ago, Mm -hmm. um, my godson's father told me he couldn't be my friend anymore because his mom, my godson's mom, put my name on an affidavit saying he was a bad parent without my permission. Hmm. Yeah. So, so, so some of this, so the dream actually, um, about anticipating your, uh, your God, is your godson? Is that right? Um, right. But uh, also, uh, yeah. But then also I, uh, was, um, engaged to go visit my sister out in California anyways. So I contacted the car club on Facebook and mm-hmm. uh, was able to go see the car in person. Where is the car? Where is it at? If you don't mind me asking. Car San club. Jose. San Jose. Okay. Because I, I, I came upon the old, old car, uh, whatever they call it, where everybody gets together and brings their old cars up in Monterey, up, uh, up Pebble Beach uh, Golf Club. Yeah. Club a couple of yeah, years the owner ago. of that car is one of the members of that club. And actually, synchronistically wise, I was just going around that 16-mile loop that runs around Pebble Beach, and I was the car that had to be stopped, oh, wow. the last car. And then, and I was, the, I had to sit yeah. there as somebody stopped me and my wife, and I said, "Oh God, uh-huh. we almost made it with the last car." And the whole club came out <laughs> over 25 minutes. I got to watch all these cars go by me. And That's amazing. Waving. I thought that was like that was an amazing coincidence. But so some yeah. of your dream it's interesting, Ptolemy, some of your dream sounds like almost a little precognitive and it's some and I often look when I work with people at the symbols that come up in the dream because sometimes we have our own repertoire of symbols. You know, Freud once said, you know, everybody who dreams of a tall building is has a phallic symbol. But Carl Jung came mm-hmm. around and said, you know, we have our own symbols and they can become they can kind of like show up in, in dreams over the course of our life and when they do they represent something about our psyche that we're trying to get um get 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 wind of and if you can unlock the key oftentimes it can give you right. a heads up that you know that whatever when i dream Intuition. of that old car for example maybe it represents right. some unresolved things about my family or something and it makes me be alert to sure i have to do that but, but you also sound like you had a little precognition going on there where if you had a dream and it was really uh pretty rich and and you know, sometimes you look at how many, how much emotion you have in it. If there's a key statement that seems to be coming through, um, but also when you're in a dream state, it's very conducive to moving beyond the usual constraints of time and space. So you know, I've had a number of precognitive dreams, and that's one way a lot of people will have precognitions of things that are about to happen in their lives. So right. there's a lot of it's very it's a very rich dream you have and it's worth, you know, bearing down with because you may pull out a lot of helpful information. Tell me if you're from Lincoln, Nebraska, I don't know your city of origin or where you currently reside. Yeah, no, I, I live here, but I was born in Oakland. So it was also an interesting coincidence that uh, you know, the year I was born, one of the car club members who lives out there bought that car. So uh, the the uh, what I can offer you is, is that for for further understanding about your dreams and about as Dr. Uh-huh. Kashudi just mentioned the symbols and what they uh, 
can mean for you personally. Uh, yeah. There's a psychotherapist in Lincoln, Nebraska. Her name is Jan Lindgren. And mm-hmm. on the second Sunday of each month, she offers a conversation on a Sunday afternoon called Dream Talk. And uh, her number is 402-488-1916. And uh, so you could attend that meeting, for example, and you could talk about your dream and uh, in a group setting get lots of important feedback from folks. So, Yeah, where, where are those meetings at? Um, she would tell you by you calling that number. And so she okay. wants to find and, out a little um, bit more about. So, sure. The number is four zero two four eight eight one nine one six. We're going to thank you very much for calling in, and wish okay. you well on your personal adventure. Oh, and I also wanted to say I think that that car is haunted because it's almost a hundred years old and uh, has some strange features to it. Okay, thanks again for calling in. Yeah, yeah. Bye, Tony. Okay, so uh, we appreciate you calling in, telling me, and if anybody else wants to chime in with, with their uh, personal experience with Dr. Pasciutti, it's 402-474-5086. Would you classify yourself, Dr. Pasciutti, as a wounded healer? Well, um, I think I certainly have had enough wounds uh, mm-hmm. In my life, which um, you know, I draw back on and even share some of those, mm-hmm. you know, without making the book be all about me. Uh, there's been times where I've had some painful experiences, and, and um, having been a therapist for 45 years, I look back at those experiences and know that the work I did on myself uh, led to me gaining a lot of growth, um, and that it not only enabled me to uh, become a better therapist, but have a lot more compassion. Mm-hmm. Uh, for people who who are undergoing similar experiences, I can't necessarily have all the experiences of people who walk in the door to work with me. But I, you know, but I've had enough losses and dealt with you know personal sickness and losses of significant others in my life. So, you know, it, it does help. I think, you know, when you have had the challenge of having to work through something in your own life and see how, in retrospect, while you might have been completely, you know swamped by the experience while it was happening uh, in the aftermath, if you had the opportunity to work it through with somebody, either a friend or a therapist, and or you look at it in retrospect, oftentimes you can see it, it really it didn't break you down as much as it broke you open. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've, I value that, that concept of a wounded healer because um, it's very authentic, and as you just so eloquently said, one can draw upon their past experiences to then help others that are going through that same or similar processes. Uh, For sure. Dr. Pasciutti, if you took a piece of paper and drew kind of a, a zigzag on that paper, and um, at the top of the zigzag put um, birth, and at the bottom of the zigzag put death, I met some uh, spiritual teachers many years ago that said that that zigzag represents each of our lives. And we're cruising along, and then all of a sudden there's a change coming up where we need to change course. And it could be mentally, emotionally, spiritually, physically, or all of the above. And they argued that it's our intuition 
that allows us to get a sense of this coming up and to start shifting to make that change smoother. And if we don't do that, that we will hit that first jog in that zigzag and we'll try to break our way through the the wall, oftentimes <laughs> just basically smashing our face in over and over and over, uh, trying to get through there and not realizing that all we have to do is metaphorically step to one side or the other, and then that, that pathway opens up. Is, is that of, of value at all for us understanding what life is like and, and what we experience? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I would say not only accept that as a very valid way in which life may work, but assist it. And I often kid with people sometimes, I'll say, I feel like I'm a human planchette on a Ouija board, you know, a little bit like where to now each day, you know, and open to the intuitive guidance. And this is what you mentioned earlier in the show. Uh, I think that guidance comes from the greater consciousness of which we are a part of. It may be our own higher self that tunes into that and is going to come to us intuitively. And, you know, Jung's, I like Carl Jung's notion of intuition as an, in, as, as the, he talks like even in people who are familiar with the psychological type theory that he put forth, two types of perception. Mm-hmm. One is being very objective-based, which is seeing, smelling, touching, tasting. The other one is intuition, which comes by way of the unconscious. So it is very subtle, and it opens us to those impressions. And sometimes people say, well, I can't, can I really trust it because I can't really like empiricize it or I can't you know, measure it in terms of its weight, its size, or visually. But over time, if you start recognizing, hey, I have this sense of the right way to go here. Now, I'm not automatically going to you know, just jump into it because I may need to mull it over and think about it. Mm-hmm. But you'll get those impressions, particularly, particularly when you go into states that are conducive to receiving them, like meditation or contemplation or prayer. Uh, you'll get that guidance, and, um, and over time, you'll come to trust it. Some people use divinatory approaches to say, I know that I have those answers within me, so I don't know if you're familiar with the I Ching, uh, the book of changes that um, comes over from the Chinese uh, culture from 5,000 years ago, or other people will use tarot cards. Now, not that you're asking to be told what to do, but you're sort of saying, let me use the, uh, the kind of um, abstract um, statements of wisdom, for instance, that are comprised within the I Ching as a stimulus for me getting a sense of that intuitive direction and then being able, and then over time, I think if you have, you learned how to tune into these impressions and you start following them and they, even if they cause changes, of course, in your life, mm-hmm. if it turns out well, you start trusting them more and you, and you give them more credence in your life. I'm going to reach over and, and grab your book back from my producer, Jim here, and I'm holding your book in the cover. And now I'd like to, Dr. Pashuti, I'd like to thank you because I'll give you a personal testimony on what you just said um, without revealing my personal circumstances, which would be a conflict of interest on our our show here. I'll say that I was uh, coming up to a business decision, if you will, that was um, pulling at me, tugging at me. It was making me uh, uncomfortable. I felt like there was lots of weight on my shoulders, and uh, it was uh, impacting me, uh, the, the uh, 
the possibility financially very much. And so uh, I was reading your book, and it was because of reading your book where you were talking about sometimes we need to look at some of our past history and find out has this occurred in other times of our life and how did it work out, what was our choices. Uh, And I realized that I've always been a guy that has been the last to leave something. Even when there are clear signs that it's time to move on. For example, the ship is sinking and I am clinging to the mast saying, well, the mast is still above water. You know, the, 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 the main part of the ship is below the water and I'm standing on part of the bridge now, but that's still above the water. And then there's the mast I can hold on to. And so... When I realized this, it was thanks to reading your book that I then made that business decision this last week, and suddenly it felt like my shoulders were about 20 to 30 pounds lighter. I knew I'd made a good decision that ultimately was going to be in my best interest as well as a communal best interest for this activity I'm involved in. And it was a tremendous relief. So. I want to personally, Dr. Pashuti, thank you very much because it was reading your book this week that was a catalyst for me to recognize a small crisis with a small C I was going through, how to affect positive change that led to an immediate transformation. And uh, so thank you, sir. I'm so glad to hear you say that. I mean, it really, is, it's very touching, and appreciate that it worked and helped you in that way. It, it, it really um, it makes me feel good about that. And uh, yeah, you know what? Sometimes you have to take that leap of faith. It's uh, it's uh, it takes courage, and it sounds like you found the courage to do that. And I'm, I'm sounding it's sounding also like it was the right thing for you to do. Mm-hmm. Right. And without again trying to uh, violate station ethics here. I'm going to suggest that that this could be a book for other people that are going through crises to read and to better understand some of the the key elements that may have appeared at other times in their lives and understanding those motivations, those features, those salient qualities. It may help you folks out there to make a good decision moving forward to transform this. Uh, and again, folks, if you're not driving a car or operating a heavy piece of machinery, wave your hand if any of you have gone through what's been called the long, dark night of the soul. Well, Dr. Prosciutti, again, there's a sea of hands waving out there. <laughs> <laughs> How could you be human and not? <laughs> So it, it may be, it may be uh, employment or job-related, it may be health, it may be relationship, <clears throat> it may be situational, it may be something that is uh, engendered by uh, family, um, all sorts of these, uh, these things that we go through. We've at times hit that zig and zag, and we're trying to find that best way to, to make the turn and to continue on the path. So um, your book was very valuable. 
and I appreciate that, Dr. Prosciutti. Can you, I'm glad you found it that way. Can you tell us, uh, before our bottom and there break, a little bit about um, 10 keys of human functioning? And then you've got them in three different places in the book. Well, I um, yes, like, for instance, I have, I've divided them into, like, what I call foundational, personal, and transpersonal. And so coming out of each crisis uh, or faced with each crisis, sometimes the crisis is because it, it takes place in one of the keys, and the first five are uh, physical development, um, or mastering the physical dimension. The crisis may be in the physical dimension, for example. Mm-hmm. Another one is the intellectual uh, growth, and of course that runs through all of them, because uh, there's always the need for more information, uh, and that sometimes the very beliefs we hold also can create crisis in our life. If we have ourselves painted in the corner with rigid beliefs, and life is challenging us to expand and open our mind. And I have emotional, which is one of the tougher ones, because feelings are difficult for us, uh, and oftentimes we want to think our way out of that uh, situation, but sometimes we just need to be able to be with the feelings and be aware of them and experience them in, in an appropriate way. And, you know, so you have an intellectual IQ, you have an emotional IQ, another one social, so you have social IQ, and also there's times where uh, we're faced with crises that require us to expand and grow on a social level, and others uh, sometimes can be moral. There might be a moral crisis at hand where we need to really examine um, you know, our, our moral compass and understand maybe in the spirit of ignorance is no excuse for the law, or maybe we need to re, uh, re, re, uh, revisit some of our beliefs about what the right and wrong of life is. So those five are in the foundational area. The next three I call more personal because they're one of the areas of growth is identity, which changes throughout the life cycle. You know, the identity of I'm a boy, I'm an Italian boy, I'm an Italian boy from New Jersey, I'm an American uh, or maybe I've had beliefs about myself uh, and or my sense of identity needs to expand to be, you know, a, a child of the universe, you know, um, and or beliefs about or identifying with my as myself as somebody who can have experiences like even psychic experiences. Uh, the next one would be identity. I'm sorry, I said identity, intimacy. And by that, I mean the capacity to share and self-disclose, which you so nicely just shared about your experience and the ability to let people get to see us and to make a connection with others on a deep level. And in doing so, you know, self-disclosure begets self-disclosure. We go deeper and relationships deepen and we learn more about ourselves. Mm -hmm. And then the third in that area is existential, which is coming to a sense of of, uh, understanding about, you know, recognizing death is inevitable at some point, but also meaning in life and purpose in life. Those are all considered the big existential issues. And then the last two are the transpersonal, which I mentioned earlier, intuitive growth, which might be opening to, you know, experiences that defy time and space, like, you know, psychic abilities, and then spiritual, which is not in the sense of religious, but more about direct contact with the part of oneself that uh, that exists outside of the body, if you will, this, the direct, the actual spirit, our consciousness separate from that which is only uh, manifested through our brain and physicality. So those are the ten. Uh, Dr. Pesciutti, uh you make your home in uh, Charlottesville? Yes, sir. And uh, before I take the break, what do you... Now that you've got the book written, what do you do for fun or just relaxation? Oh, I love exercising and traveling and hiking and biking and uh, being with my friends. And I'm an avid 
sports fan, so I love being in the college town like Charles Hoover, there's University of Virginia, and like tonight I'll watch a college football game because I enjoy sports <laughs> and I enjoy playing, and you know, so it's a great, it's a you know, I I enjoy life. I'm not overly like uh, I mean I like getting serious about it, but I also enjoy uh, want to have joy and happiness and in, in my family. I've got three kids and a grandson, so I love seeing my family too. Uh, Dr. Pashuti, I'll take the bottom of the hour break and we'll be back. And I'd, I'd like to have you talk a little bit about consciousness when we come back. Sure. I'm Scott Colborn, and our guest this morning is Dr. Frank Pashuti. The book is Chrysalis Crisis, How Life's Ordeals Can Lead to Personal and Spiritual Transformation. I'm going to give you his first and last name. And uh, here's the website, Frank. Pretty easy to spell that, right? F-R-A-N-K. Then Pashuti is P-A-S-C-I-U-T-I dot com. Once again, Frank, and then the last name P-A-S-C-I-U-T-I dot com. And I think if you also typed in Chrysalis Crisis into your favorite search engine, his website would pop up. You'll also find uh, Frank Pashuti on Facebook. And there's more conversation coming up with Dr. Pashuti. Let's talk about consciousness right after this break. Hey, the Voice of the Blues in Lincoln, Nebraska, KZUM Lincoln and KZUM HD. This Week in Lincoln is supported by the local venues with listings included here. Here is live music happening this week in Lincoln. On Saturday, September 21st, the Lowdown Dogs perform at 7 o'clock at Crescent Moon and more Lincoln Calling shows at Duffy's, the Zoo Bar, the Bourbon Theater, and Bodegas. On Sunday, September 22nd, Outlaw Road and Mackenzie Jalen start at 8 p.m. at Playmore's Country Night. Billy Bacon's Life Celebration begins at 2 p.m. at the Zoo Bar, followed by Zoolarius starting at 8 p.m. That's live music happening this week in Lincoln. The full moon lights the silver rails winding around dark mountains and over steep gorges of jagged rock in one freezing cold rushing Black Mountain River. I wish there was enough time to describe all of the funny twists and turns that led up to now, but there isn't enough time because there's a ticking clock and the two passengers we care most about don't know anything about it. To see what happens next, visit read.gov to read The Exquisite Corpse, a riveting adventure pieced together by John Sheska, Shannon Hale, Daniel Handler, and other popular authors. Explore new worlds. Read. Brought to you by the Library of Congress and the Ad Council. Hi, I'm Dick Valverde, and I'd like to invite you on a musical journey of both sound and rhythm to a place I call Mesoterra. We'll travel far from commercial culture and just a step or two away from the abstract. So join me on Saturday afternoons, 3 to 5 p.m. for Mesoterra, right here on KZUM. Scott Colborn with Exploring Unexplained Phenomena. In about maybe two weeks, a little bit more than that, right around October 10th, roughly, we're going to be celebrating 35 years of broadcast. 
And uh, nothing special planned. It'll be uh, fun as usual. But uh, for me, it's been a remarkable experience because I started the program back in 1984. It currently is the world's longest-running paranormal talk radio program. And I'm here because of the interesting conversations with people like Dr. Frank Prosciutti and others. Uh, thank you for you guys and gals being out there for your support. Uh, you've been listening for maybe weeks, months, years. There's a few of you out there that have been with us for maybe the, the bulk of that 35-year tenure. Um, you recognize that it's so important to support KZM Radio or else there wouldn't be this program. So we are about $4,500 away from our fall fundraiser goal. We'd love to have you folks out there listening that haven't already donated to do so, and you can do so easily right now during the program online at kzum.org. It'll take you about maybe two minutes to do, and we appreciate that. How would you like to have your donation be that donation that triggers the continuation of the grant money from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. So we are so close to hitting that level of being able to get that grant again. And that allows programs like mine to continue. So we appreciate your support. Go to kzm.org, and we thank you very much. Our guest is Dr. Frank Pasciutti. The brand new book is called Crystallis Crisis, and during the conversation with people that come to see you for psychotherapy and, and hypnotherapy, does the conversation or the, the nature of consciousness, does that come up in discussion? Well, a lot of my work with people tends to be addressing the conventional end and those first um, yes, sir. Eight key areas. Uh, but when I get people who come in with spiritual emergencies, which are usually, you know, the name given to folks who may be having and who have had a near-death experience or maybe what they believe might be a breakthrough of a past life memory or the, uh, the beholding an apparition, somebody, a deceased person, uh, or have an out-of-body experience or a near-death experience with an out-of-body component, when they start when they, a lot of times, not they, they need to be validated, especially if they are of sound mind. Uh, and, and when I start trying to, get, they need a lot of information. And so, basically, part of the book is providing an explanatory model for understanding how can our world work in a way that sometimes seems to defy time and space as we know it. Oftentimes, with that, there'll be a need for information as uh, in, in, that, in, in that regard. I might say, well, we need to take a look at consciousness as a foundational component to the universe and that it's all consciousness and that, you know, kind of a little bit of a major uh, uh, swing is away from the notion that it is materiality uh, or in our case as humans, the brain, the physical component that gives rise to consciousness, but actually on a foundational level, it is consciousness that that exists uh, and gives rise to everything, including the physical world. Um, there's a uh, philosophical position called panentheism, which suggests that this consciousness uh, surrounds and penetrates and gives rise to everything. 
uh, and oftentimes people say, well, aren't you talking about God? And, you know, we'll say, okay, if you want to call that consciousness God, it's fine. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's other names we can give it, but whether you identify it with a religion and a certain name, uh, there nevertheless does seem to exist a uh, a foundation of what Carl Jung and, and uh, the Nobel Prize winning physicist Wolfgang Pauli years ago called the Unus Mundus, the one ground of all things, all being. Um, and so I don't want to necessarily try to suggest that I have a handle. I think many of us are, I mean, on consciousness, many of us are kind of like blind men poking at an elephant, you know? <laughs> Everybody's defining it from their own particular bias and their own angle which they uh, come from. I come from it as a more of a psychologist, parapsychologist, philosophy perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, but I but I think that one of the shifts, if you start looking at these phenomena, particularly of the uh, paranormal and the psychic nature, and you'd say, well, consciousness um, or spirit even is an energy, and so it really can't be destroyed. Uh, even back in Einstein said that the whole material dimension is frozen energy. So you start thinking, okay, so is this energy or this consciousness has both knowledge and it exists, and I am a part of that, so I can never really end. I mean, maybe my ego and my sense of myself as Frank may end, but that part of me that carries the essence and the growth that I gather over lifetimes, if you believe they're willing to entertain reincarnation as a process for gathering that information through many lives and experiences, um, then I am continuing to expand along with the greater consciousness of the universe so people, I think, what happens is I think it builds a bridge for science and religion to say, okay, we can get our heads around and maybe find it like at the most foundational common denominator of both science and religion and spirituality is to say, okay, maybe consciousness is at the bottom here, and it gives rise to everything. But, you know, it's, you know, it's hard to prove when you start getting into these areas of spirituality and and, um, and transpersonal phenomena, there's where experience is necessary mm-hmm. uh, because it gets hard to find. Uh, if we're used to a 3D world and our measurements are, you know, like rulers and weight and, and visual seeing, if you're from Missouri, right? I, you know, seeing is believing kind of a thing. Um, and show me, show me. And it, sometimes it's hard. It's hard to gather that. But, yet, but when people have experiences, they start realizing, okay, maybe there is a dimension out there, and we can call it consciousness. Um, and it gets confusing, too, because people say, consciousness, do you mean conscious? Do you mean unconscious? Well, I'd say consciousness as a foundational aspect, which we are all a part of. We may be conscious and aware of, of degrees of that level of consciousness, or we may be unconscious. It's awfully brain-twisting. Mm. We may be unconscious to what dimensions of consciousness are available to us. So I guess the idea here is to try to gain as much conscious awareness of the capacities of consciousness that are available to us as humans. Uh, It's uh, interesting that a lot of people, when they approach the subject, they believe and adhere to the idea that consciousness is something we carry around in our head. It's encased in this... Uh, brain and in our bones and and membranes and skin. I read a book years ago by Douglas Harding that was called On Having No Head. And he asked people to imagine looking through a knothole in a fence and being able to see through that knothole into another area. 
and imagining that that was what we were peering through also, uh, that we were an immensity on one side of that fence looking out through that, that knothole into this other area, uh, and that there was a lot more besides just this idea of consciousness enclosed in a, in a um, cranial area. And there's another great analogy, uh, Frank, and maybe you could comment on this one, that Stephen Levine presented in his book, A Gradual Awakening, where he talked about um, that we so adhere to our thoughts as being a self-identifying trait of ourselves. We say, that's, that's us. There's another thought, that's us. And these thoughts just keep on flowing in the mind. So he says, imagine that you're at a um, crossing arm for a railroad track. The crossing arm has come down. You're parked in your car. You're sitting there. The train's approaching, and you're staring straight ahead. And now out of the periphery on your left, you see the engine, and it's coming now into view straight on ahead of you. And now it's receding to your right out of that periphery. And here's another car coming. And it's a very slow freight train, and each car comes from your left to the center and then to the right. And so these cars are like our thoughts. And we identify and say, that, that train car is me. Nope, that one's me. There's another one that's me. And he says, just imagine what's behind that procession of cars. There's mm-hmm. infinity, and that's also each of us we're, we're these thoughts up front that we say that's us but behind those thoughts is an immensity that is also part of who we are and now we come okay. back and talk about you know is consciousness encased in this cranial structure your, your comments Dr. Well, Prosciutti well that, well that was beautiful I love that book by the way uh, and uh, it was uh, it was well said. I I, um, I think one I'd like to double back and say that mm-hmm. because I think that we're swimming in a sea of consciousness. We are completely surrounded by it, and it constitutes who we are. Mm-hmm. So it's all consciousness, if you will. Mm-hmm. And um, and Carl, uh, what's his name? Well, William James said years ago, and I tend to uh, uh, favor this this theory or belief is that you know this consciousness is all around us, and we are. Our brains are like transmission vehicles, so we transmit it. And so if we are sitting, when you were giving me those images of cars moving through, railroad cars, oftentimes I think of meditation that way. When I try to still myself in meditation and a thought comes in, I just let it pass through until I can get to the still point of no thought. And when I'm in a no thought state, you know, time and space change. And I am open to impressions, other impressions, not only just thoughts that I attach to, like, you know, when you're doing, when you first start learning how to meditate, you have that monkey mind that wants to jump from tree to tree, and, you know, you, you just let it go. But there's an element of saying that it's all out there already, and this consciousness is, is all around us, and we're swimming in it. And in order to align with it or abide in it, we need to be still and become aware of it. So it's about increasing awareness. And um, so I, I completely agree with what he's saying. Is an awakening to what we already are in that mm-hmm. way. We already are connected. We already 
Bergson once said, we are all gods in the making. We're all trying to get back to that state of consciousness, which we all share uh, with the greatest consciousness. And so it takes work because we are so identified with physicality, it's hard to let that go. But if you get into deep meditative states, you're not aware of your body as much. Your mind is still alert, but they call it mind alert, body asleep state. And if you were to put yourself on an EEG, you'd be in what we would say a theta wave or an alpha state, as opposed to what we're in right now, beta or sleeping when we're in delta. So if you can learn how to abide and be still in that state, you can kind of attune to and resonate and just, you know, again, abide in that state of consciousness. Uh, and all information is out there. Uh, the Akashic records or the Akashic field, everything is recorded. And we are, we have a direct line to that. If we can learn how to, how to establish a resonant state. And, and I, in my book, I circle back with all those 10 keys. I'll say, like, for example, it's our challenge over a lifetime or lifetimes to gain mastery of each of these keys so that we can put ourselves in a conducive state to gain conscious awareness of consciousness. So if you look at physicality, you might say, well, even when I'm meditating, if I'm not preoccupied with my body, money, you know, financial concerns or all these other things or, you know, just, you know, my physical well-being, food and shelter, certainly if I don't have it, uh, or if I'm, you know, of an intellectual belief that I, I can't open to these possibilities, even intellectually, and that could be a stifling uh, place to be, or if I'm, I'm, if I'm not, like, resolved about certain emotional events or I don't have full access to my feelings, all these keys can work with us to help us then, I call it using the keys at a higher octave, to put ourselves in a conducive state to be able to attune to this greater consciousness, which we're already a part of anyway, mm -hmm. just not consciously aware of it. Uh, Paula Harris is my friend and colleague who does a conference each November called the Starworks USA UFO Symposium. And her big focus, Dr. Pashuti, is on consciousness and helping people understand that, that once we move through um, the study of UFOs and, and their, their uh, occupants, and we talk about the propulsion system and the hardware and et cetera, the, the larger questions have to come around and, and be looked at, which include what do we share with these other intelligent beings in creation, and that is consciousness. And so she's sure. uh, she's creating in that field, and I, I applaud her so much, uh, a new paradigm shifting things away from the old paradigm of nuts and bolts and hardware and arguments about whether or not they're quote-unquote real to engaging now into some, some larger questions. Uh, I first learned about altered states and these other levels of awareness when I was a kid Dr. Pichuti playing music. I was with a, a rock band, and we were some young guys that had grown up together. We'd practiced a lot. And one day, I will never forget it, we were playing and improvising, and suddenly it was as if I shifted into an uh, altered state where I knew, in a sense of ESP, what the other musicians were going to play before they played it. The interaction was was right there on just on the cusp of now, right there, right there. And as I experienced this, I lifted my gaze up 
and the rest of the members of the band were doing the same thing. We'd all arrived at this place together, and we nodded and grinned, and I've been coming back for more ever since. <laughs> so <laughs> what a wonderful experience. So blessed to have that. That's really beautiful. And, and see, how do you, how do you explain that? Mm. You start getting into like, wow, do we have, do we have an explanatory model that can help us understand that that's a valid and very powerful experience. And it's lovely to have that. And that's, you know, part of what I I'm reaching for, because I've had some experiences, mm-hmm. not, not quite just like that, but enough to say, how do we explain these things? You know, I belong to an organization called ASSIST, the American Center for the Integration of Spiritually Transformative Experiences. And it's a national organization uh, that when people have these except what we call exceptional experiences, sometimes they want to talk to somebody about it. to just like either get them validated or explore how the heck they could happen because they're so impressionable that you don't forget them and you get a taste of them. And so you would think, just like you were suggesting there, wouldn't it be nice to be able to abide on a more sustained basis in that level of consciousness? Um, you know, nothing uh, like it. I would give. Often, I would give I'm anything. Sorry? I would say that state. There's nothing like it. There's no uh, drug. There's no sex. There's no anything that comes even close to that. To that state. Yeah, that's a yes, pure, yes. pure joy and bliss. State. It's beautiful. Beautiful. I had a client. Well, one of the clients at the end of the book where I try to pull all my thoughts together to try to offer some cases and stories that people can relate to, had that experience after we did a lot of work. Mm-hmm. We did some regression with her, and she had some blocks, but I think she was already had a pretty, was pretty much what people might refer to as an old soul, had a lot of development. And then the weekend after that had a unitive experience, and she'll never forget it. And, you know, she actually was kind enough to write it all out and let me put it in the book. And when you read it, it's like, wow, you know, and, and yet, like there's the old saying, uh, you know, bef- what is it, uh, before enlightenment, carry water, chop wood, <laughs> after enlightenment, carry water, chop wood, you just do it differently. You know, you have your, you've been expanded. You have a sense of, hey, there's more to this experience that I have as a human being um, and uh, then just, you know, getting along in a physical world. There's a there's a whole state of consciousness that I would love to be able to uh to uh, act, uh, you know, to be able to access and sustain. You know, Sri Aurobindo, the uh, Hindu saint, once said, you know, sometimes people will achieve these experiences uh, unwittingly. They may have one under drugs, and they'll say, well, every now and then, if we're fortunate enough, like you, Scott, to have an experience like that, uh, he'll say, you know, it's about this. Uh, um, it's about learning to augment the ground that enables us to have increasing experiences like that. And then I think it's, it takes us back to those earlier developmental areas where we need to grow so that we can maybe continue to evolve so that the incidences that occur like that become more frequent in our mm-hmm. life. Or maybe even, and I would believe on some level, we can consciously bring about. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, I posted last night on my Facebook page, I said, you know, are you experiencing a crisis? Are you experiencing change? Or do you sense the need for change? Uh, this is the uh, uh, book by Dr. Frank Prosciutti called Chrysalis Crisis. And you don't have to be hit over the head with an oak two-by-four to make change. I've been there and done that. Uh, there can be other ways to recognize that there is something afoot and that change is needed 
And that results in a transformative experience. Uh, if you want to find out more about that, that whole process, um, and where that might lead each of you, the book is Chrysalis Crisis, How Life's Ordeals Can Lead to Personal and Spiritual Transformation. Dr. Pasciutti's website is his first and last name. That's Frank, and last name is P-A-S-C-I-U-T-I dot com. Dr. Pasciutti, thank you so much for being with us on this uh, wonder-filled Saturday morning. I've enjoyed the conversation with you very much, and I hope that, that, uh, that you keep at this stuff for as long as it's fun for you and that that help keeps coming back to you in so many wonderful ways. Thank you, Scott. Thanks for having me on your show. And it was truly enjoyable, and having an experience like I just had uh, definitely assures that I'll be continuing to stay with this, and uh, I appreciate your time and, and your sharing. What What are you doing for the rest of the weekend now? You mentioned football tonight. <laughs> well, basically going out to dinner with my wife. Good. I'm going to probably watch a football game and, and going to go for a bike ride with some good friend of mine tomorrow morning and do some other, you know, it's a beautiful weekend here in Virginia. And so I'm probably going to go out and do some yard work. I love working in the, getting in the dirt and working with, you know, moving leaves around and things like that. So I, uh, I enjoy just uh, going out there and just soaking up the, the beauty of the, the, the surroundings here. Thank you so much. Again, I personally, uh, as I said, benefited from your book. I want to thank you once again for that and keep on keeping on, sir. Okay, thanks, Scott. Appreciate your time. Bye now. Dr. Frank Prosciutti, the author of Chrysalis Crisis, How Life's Ordeals Can Lead to Personal and Spiritual Transformation. Jim, what are you doing for the rest of the weekend? Oh, probably just staying inside and puttering around in the, in the lab, brewing up strange electronics things. Playing some guitar? Yeah, maybe a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to do that and have a great rest of day here. I want to thank you folks for listening today. Stay tuned for Kellen with some more great music coming up in just minutes from now. And encourage all those that, that found something of value today with our conversation with Dr. Frank Persciutti to consider a donation to nonprofit, non-commercial KZUM Radio. It's your money that powers what we do here. So just as we all have financial obligations of rent and utilities and et cetera, so does KZUM. We're so close to achieving our goal. But won't you be one of those folks that helps us get nearer and even puts us over that goal? You can do so by making a donation online at kzum.org. We thank you very much. Next week's guest is Marie Jones, and she's got a brand new book called Celebrity Ghosts and Notorious Hauntings. Looking forward to talking with her. Guys and gals, thanks so much for listening, for all that you do. Keep on.